at the very age of 10, you became one of the youngest Zen certified professional in the world at that time. How did that happen? I moved from Visual Basic to learning C, C++, and I was building like rudimentary applications that, that would run on your computer, right? Ronnie Bhai is basically someone who is a computer science student. So Ronnie Bhai basically told me that if you want to build stuff that you want to see and you want to build the futuristic software applications, if you will, um, you need to learn how to develop web apps, get into web development. If you are starting a company and you have no experience, it's probably great to work with someone who does have experience. Whether it's a few years, whether it's 10 years, doesn't really matter. I totally agree with you as well. Um, so I got really heavy into like powerlifting, um, trained for it more or less since. I, I took breaks, I got injured in between as well. I took breaks, but so I basically like lifting heavy stuff. So what's the heaviest have you lifted recently? It's actually yesterday. I did a deadlift of 193 kilos, uh, which is 425 pounds. Insane. That's double your weight, I'm sure. Hi. I'm Salman Hussain, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Beginner's Moonshot Podcast. It's a show about entrepreneurs, changemakers, and the misfits among us, where we go deep into their untold backstories and crazy ambitions. My season one is focusing on the pivoting stories from the Bangladesh startup and entrepreneurship scene. And in this episode, I'm talking to the founder of Instant, a micro-checkout system for e-commerce stores that plans to take the existing checkout solutions to the next level. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, don't forget to subscribe. You can also follow my social media handles at Salman Hussain, where I share updates for all the upcoming episodes. With that, let's dive into it. Imagine buying online concert tickets for your favorite singer, a situation where time is of the essence. You enter the website an hour in advance, waiting for the very second the tickets get released. You pick the best front row seats and go into the checkout process, filling in all your details. Finishing as fast as you can, you click the submit button. And oh damn, you are too late. The tickets are already sold out. Shopping online, customers have to face many obstacles which drag them into deserting their carts often. With 7 out of 10 people on average abandoning their online carts, customer retention has become a serious cause of concern for online retailers, especially in this pandemic world where everything is moving into digital. Analyzing the main issues related to this bad conversion rate showed that one of the major causes of cart abandonment was the inconvenient long checkout process. Apart from a few highly optimized sites, the average checkout form has 24 elements, 15 fields to fill, 22 clicks, and 5 steps. Every second spent on checkout erodes conversion for a company. The solution to this problem would be simple to shorten the checkout process and increase its efficiency, reducing all the abandonment that is taking place due to the whole inconvenience. Shirzat Nuttaus, a software engineer turned startup founder, did just that, minimizing the checkout process with his newly launched platform called Instant. Instant is a micro-checkout system for e-commerce stores. This one-click checkout system has the potential to increase sales by 20% or more. The system only needs five fields and one step for a first-time user. The future of Instant Checkout is a bright one, but what exactly caused Taos to see the bright light and follow it? Is this industry really as glorious as it seems? Let's hear from Taos on his journey from being one of the tech whiz kids in the country and appearing in the largest TEDx in Bangladesh, working under reputable tech companies globally to starting his own startup. How can one make the switch and make it successful? So Taos, how are you doing? 
I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. So, so this is Beginner's Moonshot. And as you know that we talk about the beginner story, the story of anyone who ever was a beginner at some point in their life. So we really want to go deep dive into that. And, and in many ways, you definitely have a very amazing story for anyone of your age or young uh, in their university days or early young graduates looking to explore what they want to do next would be a great story to share with all of them. So before I go deep into your sort of backstories, let's talk about what you're currently doing now. What have you been doing lately, let's say in the recent um, one year or so time? Yeah, so we've been working on uh, Instant, which is essentially micro-checkout. We're the first company to build what's called micro-checkout. Um, what we build is this lightning-fast method of checkout, which is embedded on e-commerce websites and essentially allows shoppers to check out really fast and conveniently with, with any payment method they want, like without having to go to like the traditional like four to six page redirects and steps and all that. Um, the problem we're solving is basically that E-commerce stores online like typically have anywhere between 90 to 97% abandonment rate. So of 100 users who show up on their website, only 3% typically convert. And we're trying to change that. We're trying to increase that percentage. So how would you explain Instant for anyone who's trying to understand this from a startup point of view? So you are a startup. You're building this product for businesses. Anyone who has an e-commerce platform, they integrate your product or your checkout, which is a micro-checkout as part of their checkout process. So when they do this, do they need to have their own existing checkout or they can just completely replace their checkout with yours? So the idea is to completely replace um, the checkout process, but the way we work is it's plug-and-play installation. So right now we support uh, native integrations with WooCommerce, but going forward, we're building on integrations with Shopify, Magento, and other platforms. So as a seller, so our customers are store owners or online sellers, essentially. So as a seller, if you have a website built using, let's say, WooCommerce or in the future Shopify and Magento, you just install like a plugin and add-on, just you know, plug and play and it just works. It'll take over the checkout process and, and apply micro checkout. So checkout, I think, I mean, essentially it's one of the most complex part of any sort of e-commerce journey of the entire funnel. Now, checkout also involves a lot of uh, transactions, a lot of sort of exchange of data information between and among the user and the platform itself. So how then you coming as a third sort of the, um, let's call it a widget, uh, how do you then sort of manage the flow of the all this database that has been collected, the information to the CRM? And so is this a standalone that sits inside the, uh, the sort of the owner's e-commerce or do you kind of in the cloud sort of shared them, whatever you collect through your e-commerce checkout? Yeah, so that's actually a very interesting question. So typically, I guess a lot of shoppers don't understand this, but typically their information is passing between usually multiple stakeholders, so more than two or three, typically. So if you're on a, let's say on a Shopify website, typically it's going from you to the store to some payment gateway could be Stripe. If you're using Apple Pay or Google Pay, then your phone is more involved in that process. If you're using PayPal, that's another party that's involved. Um, so we are basically just one of those parties that handle that information and it goes through us. Um, what we end up doing is we integrate with payment gateways like Stripe, um, PayPal, etc. On the other hand, we integrate with the e-commerce platforms, so whether it's Shopify or Magento or WooCommerce. And as a merchant, typically what would happen is you would already have a website either with WooCommerce or whatever the case be. And on the other hand, you would already have a payment gateway that you use, whether it's Stripe, PayPal, Square, or someone else. And we would just sit in the middle. So we just you just come on our website, you connect your Stripe and our PayPal, 
Uh, and on the other hand, just install our plugin on your site and it'll work. In terms of where we store the information, like this is a bit complex because payment information obviously is sensitive data and you know there's PCI compliance, et cetera, that needs to be taken into account. So we don't actually store a lot of that information ourselves. We partner up with other companies. So we work with Stripe, for example, with PayPal uh, and like other vaulting technologies where basically they're the PCI compliant guys who actually store the payment information. We don't. Uh, in terms of how we sync it, so one of the things that's 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 important in our checkout process as a shopper, if you use our checkout on a store and then you go to a different store, your information actually gets carried over. So you just click on a button and you're done checking. You don't have to re-enter the same information again if two stores are using the same checkout from us, right? Um, and the way we do that, obviously, is that it's cloud-enabled. At the same time, there's a part of our solution that sits in the e-commerce website. So as a merchant, you would install a plugin within your store, and that part sits in your store. And then it works with our cloud uh, sort of SaaS provider, uh, providing which basically gives you the rest of the capabilities. Sure. I just want to go back to the checkout bit. So since any user journey during the very checkout is very critical for any companies, brands to understand more about the user behavior, whether they're putting things in the cart, whether they're abandoning the cart, whether they're actually successfully going through or there was a failed transaction for whatever the hops that was involved in the entire process, whether it's a payment hops or, or you know, like you know, any other e-commerce uh, connectivities. How do you then, now you being the one additional hops into the entire process, how do you ensure that funnel analysis for the e-commerce to really deep dive into each one of those transactions? Right. So one of the things that we do, we actually reduce the number of hops altogether, right? So basically the way our checkout works is, you know, as a shopper, you go on a site, you click on the checkout button, and within that page, this sort of model shows up where you have all the payment options, right? Um, and once you're on it, we can not only, we, we not only know that you're clicking on a specific payment method, we know exactly what could have gone wrong with the payment. So let's say you did, did an Apple Pay transaction and it didn't work for whatever reason, right? We actually would have more insights because all the payment methods are distilled into this one plugin. So we understand how like every single one of them work and any problems we can actually report it back. So in terms of like how things would work, the way we do it is we're sort of the orchestrator. At the end of the day, it's still Stripe or Square or PayPal processing the transaction. In terms of the actual order management that's still WooCommerce, we sort of orchestrate that entire thing. So if any piece of that goes wrong, we actually have central data source at that point, right? Like we can actually report exactly what went wrong rather than sort of like you having to go through a lot of blocks. So this can this might actually be one of the offerings that we have in the future where we provide more insights on what sometimes goes wrong, et cetera, and also more metrics on what the shopper is doing on a site. But this is something that we can actually do better than what exists. So what exactly is your biggest competition right now? It's a bit interesting, this question specifically, because like there are companies trying to solve the same problem. And if you define competition in terms of who else is trying to solve this problem, there's Fast. Fast Checkout is a big one. There's Bolt Checkout. Um, obviously, there are companies like Shopify building products. Like Shopify has their own called ShopPay, which is a one-click checkout. So all of these companies are um, trying to solve the same problem. However, in terms of how we have built our product, um, we don't actually look at it as sort of one-click checkout where, you know, what Fast, for example, ends up doing is they store a shopper's credit card information and then just allow you to reuse it when you go to a different store. But as a shopper shopping with Fast for the first time on any store, it's the same as a normal checkout would be. You still have to fill out all the forms and stuff. Um, what we do is basically partner with companies like Fast, right? We actually support, for example, Apple Pay, Google Pay. So we're not a closed ecosystem that just remembers credit card information, right? We want to partner. So Fast could be a potential partner for us going forward. So this is where it gets a bit interesting because 
companies that you would typically call our competitors, like the closest alternative, if you will, are potential partners for us. And sort of the very existence of so many of these one-click checkout providers give need to something that will actually orchestrate all of this. Where as a shopper, when you come on, if you see 50 different payment options, you're like, what am I going to click on? So what we do is we actually intelligently serve you the payment options that you are most likely to click on in the order that you're more likely to click on. Uh, so these are some things that we do within the product. Uh, but yeah, one-click checkout companies would be the closest sort of substitute alternatives, if you will. But it's not the same approach. And in fact, potentially they're partners for, all, for us. Right. And um, so what has been some of your attractions uh, since you started? Yeah, so we launched end of April. It was, yeah, end of April. Um, so it was 28th April that we launched um, for, for the first time. It was on Product Hunt. We became number one product of the week on Product Hunt, um, more or less like by the end of the week. And it was, it was nice because there were many other really top sort of quality products that launched that week. There were former founders who did, did launches that week as well. Um, anyway, so that was that was good. Just for the audience, the product hunt is basically like the mecca for anyone building products uh, in the tech space. And if you basically build your product and submit it there, you get vetted by the you know all the veterans there. And being the number one product of the week basically is a great validation when you're building a product. So, and I think you know that's that's a great feat. So congratulations, guys. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So that happened, and then we ended up onboarding like. I think in the first few days, like I think 30 stores or so, um, which was nice. Like numbers obviously work a bit differently for e-commerce sellers because it's not a consumer product, right? And what kind of clients are these? Like who are these early adopters? Yeah, so they're mostly e-commerce sellers. Um, vast majority of them being in the fashion space. So clothing, apparel, shoes, etc. Um, so mostly in the fashion space um, who sort of adopted our technology very early on. And what we did after that was we actually... After the product launch, we toned down on like all sales and marketing for the most part. Like we sort of focused on reaching out to these people who actually signed up for a product. Went through the entire like obviously V that was V1 more or less. So V1 obviously was the most buggiest version of the product. The fact that they actually took the trouble of going through it and actually installing it and making it work was obviously a wow factor for us. So we basically just reached out to them. And over the last sort of few months, we've learned a lot. So one of the things that we did when we first launched was we were very similar to what Fast is as a product. So we were basically one other one-click checkout company on top of like many others that are established and you know very early stage both of them right so yeah so we we did that and what we learned was like the one-click checkout space is getting very crowded like there's lots of companies trying to build this um and one of the problems that we saw was you know we had customers who had hundreds of thousands of dollars in monthly transaction volume and we were barely getting one percent of those transactions but what that means is 99% of the transactions, 99% of shoppers weren't even noticing our button. They weren't even noticing that instant checkout exists on this website, right? So we realized that's not going to work in the long run. It doesn't actually add value. Like, let's say we build a faster checkout, but if no one clicks on it, it doesn't matter, right? Um, so we realized that that needs to change. We have to actually rethink how checkout itself is done rather than just be one option at the end of checkout, right? And that's what led to micro checkout. So... The product basically was in beta for the last like few months, more or less. Like we tested with a few merchants within that larger audience. We've onboarded more than fifty merchants at this point, around fifty merchants at this point. Um, but we basically tested it on a subset of them, and then we finally launched launched it soft launch um, a few weeks ago. So a few weeks ago it went live. Um, since then we've had a few merchants sort of transition over and is in the process of transitioning over. Um, our goal is over the next few months to actually go a lot wider on on like marketing. So which is why this this uh, podcast was very well timed because until like a few weeks ago, I, like we weren't actually doing any public engagements whatsoever. 
um, we were very focused on just iterating on the product. Awesome. So I think I want to go more into what's happening now and what's coming next, but let's take a step back and let's give a bit of the backstories to the users. Uh, who exactly is Shezat Nataus and what exactly was your starting point? Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Where was it? Where were you? And uh, what exactly were the kid that you were during those early years of your life? What was it like? I was in Dhaka. Uh, I grew up in Dhaka um, all the way till you know end of high school. Um, I wasn't BIT for most of my life as a student. Um, I started coding very early on. So I started code, learning how to code back in fourth grade. So I was, I think, 10 at, the po- at that point. And it grew on me and it became a part of me. So I became very passionate about building software, writing code. And that just, you know, that's something that entered my life when I was 10, but remained, I mean, remains to this day. So for, because of that, what I did in middle school and almost the entirety of high school as well, was I got involved with the tech community. And I believe that's how I also met you. Uh, you uh, we met when I was still in middle school, high school-ish, right? Um, yeah. yeah, so I basically got in touch with, you know, mentors like yourself. And, you know, we I, I used to organize a bunch of events at the time around like coding and then promoting like um, this idea of starting to learn coding at an early stage. Um, tried to build a few products as well here and there. Like I built an anonymous social networking app. Um, and then built like this note-taking app when I was in high school. So th- this was, that was fun. So just basically enjoyed doing it, did it as much as I could. So part of it was trying to sort of help my friends and other people in my school and other schools to learn how to code. And the other part was just building stuff randomly, whatever I thought was cool. Um, yeah, so did that almost my, basically all the way through high school and then went to study abroad. I want to spend a bit more time on this. So like what stumbled upon you that resulted in you getting into coding? And was it a person, something you watched somewhere? What was the influence? Yeah, it was, it was actually, it's an interesting story. So I used to have a home tutor back in fourth grade. His name is Tarek Sir. I, I always call him Tarek Sir. So Tarek, and I'm still in touch with him. So Tarek Sir, basically, what we would do is we would, he would come over and we would go over our home, my homework and my tests and all that. And then we would basically just talk for the last like 30 minutes or 40 minutes of this time. We'd just talk. And I really enjoyed talking to him. I still do um, when, when we meet. So one of the topics that we talked about was this, this beautiful house that he had seen on either Natu or some other TV channel. And he was telling me about this really nice house. And we were talking about like the guy who owns that house. Um, the guy who owned that house was Bill Gates, um, the founder of Microsoft. So, and then I basically asked him like, what does that mean? And, and at the time, I didn't know what Microsoft was per se. I used Windows. I would have noticed it, but I didn't really know what that meant, right? Um, so I asked him like, what is Microsoft? Like, what's the story? So he told me that, Bill Gates started, you know, learning how to write code to build this kind of software that application would be used when he was 13. Um, and then I was like, I basically asked him, could I learn too? And he was like, yeah, you could try. And then he encouraged me to sort of actually pursue that. He wasn't a computer science background guy himself. Uh, he, he had a business background, but he sort of just told me that, you know, if you want to do something big in your life at some point, if you want to be ambitious, then software is probably the sort of career path that you want to pursue, or, or it is going to be a big career path. So I guess with all of that and, and the inspiration of like Bill Gates' story, that became quite interesting to me. And I ended up buying this book called Mastering Visual Basic 6, um, brought it home and basically read through it, didn't understand anything. It had a CD at the end of it, which actually had a lot of source code from across the book. Um, I entered it, edited the code, and that's basically how I learned how to code. Like I edited the code that existed on that CD and just played with it. And this is when you were in grade three, four? Four. Grade four, yeah. Four. four. Yeah. And 
that was just just a tiring point. But then again, at the very age of 10, you became one of the youngest Zen certified professional in the world at that time. How did that happen? So I think, so that actually happened when I was 13 or 14. I don't quite remember. It could be 14 or 15 as well. It happened a few years after I started out of good. So I, um, so at some point in time, Tarek Sir's friend, uh, Ronnie Bhai, is basically someone who is a computer science student. So he actually, Tarek Sir got me in touch with Ronnie Bhai. At the time I was, I moved from Visual Basic to learning C++ and I was building like rudimentary like uh, applications that, that would run on your computer, right? Using C++. Um, and then he basically told, Ronnie basically told me that if you want to build stuff that you want to see and you want to build the sort of futuristic software applications, if you will, um, you need to learn how to develop web apps, right? And that was sort of when it, I, I had just, you know, gotten access to the internet maybe a year or two before that. Um, so he was basically like, if you want to learn how to do this, then just, you know, get into web development. And when I got into web development, um, I went into w3schools.net. The website exists to this day. It's probably the best place to learn how to develop you know, web applications. So I, I went through their HTML, JavaScript, Ajax, PHP, and MySQL tutorials, these specific ones. And yeah, that, that's how I learned PHP for the first time. And then I got in, uh, got introduced to, I guess, uh, to Hasim Bhai at some conference. Uh, and Hasim Bhai was the first answer of an engineer in Bangladesh. And that was, you know, he's been a mentor for me ever since. And, you know, we've been in touch. So that was definitely a big inspiration for me. So because because Hasim Bhai was a Zen certified engineer, I thought I want to give it a shot as well. And that's basically how it ended up happening eventually. Yeah, because I mean, I know very well about you during those years. And you were not just coding yourself and learning and becoming a master at it. You were also creating, you know, events to promote coding and you did uh, involve at a national Olympiad level for innovation, coding through innovation as well. You were organizing TEDx uh, in your school. Tell us about those days. Like, why, how did this, you know, let's say a nerdy young kid who is a Zen certified professional, who is a Microsoft uh, certified professional, is suddenly organizing events and telling other young kids to learn to code? Yeah, it was so. Basically, back in the day, especially I think when I was in eighth, ninth grade-ish, um, PHP experts was very active, much more active than they are today. They're pretty active again now, but at the time they were sort of, you know, it was early years, and they were they used to have this conference every year that was called the PHP Expert Seminar, um, and this was a big deal. Like I remember, I went, I I, I could barely get into one of the PHP Expert Seminars that I really wanted to go to, and basically brought in all the experts within the PHP programming language from around the country. This is where everyone would come. And I think at the time, it was one of the biggest tech conferences that happened in the country. Um, so yeah, so when I went to those conferences, like it was, it was very, it seemed very interesting. It was, it was like the, the energy was there. You, you know what I mean? Like there were so many people coming in, talking about ideas, and, and I really enjoyed it. And then in PHP Experts 2011, I believe it was, that um, Hasim Bhai and Masun Bhai basically asked me to speak at that event. That's when I sort of became a server engineer, like early on. And when they asked me to speak, I obviously went and spoke. This was, you know, a really big event for me. And since then, I said, you know, if PHP Express is doing this for the sort of the expert community, right? Like if you're going into these events, most of the content that they cover is sort of targeted to experts per se. Um, I said, why don't we have something that is more targeted towards people who are just starting out, right? Which, which basically, in, in, in a lot of sense, I was, right? So I, what I did is I basically approached a lot of these, you know, borrowers of the community essentially saying, hey, I want to do this. And I actually named the first conference Introduction to the Web, 
So it was it was called Introduction to the Web. That was the seminar. And I so PHP Experts was held at United International University in UIU's auditorium. So I just showed up at UIU with Tarek Sir. So the guy who in grade four, fourth grade sort of asked me to learn coding. So I just showed up um, with him and then um, there was a there was a buyer we used to know who used to be a student there who helped us sort of get a booking. But for whatever reason, the booking was getting canceled. But we we showed up and then we talked to a lot of senior professors and then we convinced them to sort of let us have the booking. And eventually we had the event. And PHP Experts community, this is where sort of we promoted the event as well and we promoted it outside as well. And a lot of university students showed up. And that was that was a pretty big event. Like I think we had 400 or 500 people in that event-ish. So it was, it was a good start. And when that happened, we said, you know what, we're going to do this again. And we did ITTW2. So this time we dropped the full name. We just said ITTW. That's the name of the conference. And we did the second version. Fires Bhai was very helpful in that version. Fires Bhai um, from Fortuna. So he actually sponsored the event. Uh, he showed up. He obviously did his speech as well. And, and that, was, that was a great one. And then we did one more at ISD. And then one hour of code event, which was just learning undergrad. So we did a bunch of events after that. At that point in time, we had these, you know, initially it started off with like people in the PHP community who helped either sponsor the event or attend the event or promote the event. It sort of grew beyond that. Then Firespy came in, then Sonia Bashir came in. She actually helped us with the sponsorship from Dell. Sonia Auntie is, is how I call her. That's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she came in and then um, there were there were a bunch of other sponsors. I have Fahim Kai from BD Jobs sponsored one of our events as well. So it, it sort of grew from there. And, and as we got more and more support, we said we want to do more stuff. And eventually in like 11th grade, uh, I thought of the, you know, organizing this competition, sort of this beginner coding competition. Like there was, there was like the informatics Olympiad where a lot of the people like Vishti was a, was a friend. Um, she went and, you know, she basically did really well at an international level. And she's obviously a great engineer and coder, even at that point. So I said, what about the rest of them? What about the rest of the kids who are sort of just starting, starting to learn how to code and stuff? So we basically built up this thing where we called it National Olympiad and Software Innovation. And we organized this competition from around the country to get first, like anywhere between middle school to first year university students to come in and compete by building stuff. At that point in time, Arev Bhai from uh, EMK Center agreed to sort of help us out. And EMK Center was the main sponsor of that event. And we ended up doing it. So it was, it was an interesting journey doing all those events. And I learned a lot from it because fundraising was a major aspect of those events. Uh, and then sort of organizing, and especially when we worked with the MK, remember, we definitely had to do a lot more like due diligence overall internally to make sure everything is, you know, you know, watertight and all that. Um, so yeah, that was sort of the journey. So as you were doing so many of these things while being a student in your high school, and it felt like many of these things were almost falling into places, but was it really that easy? Um, because uh, to me, even Bangladesh wasn't quite... You know, it was the very early stage for many of those people who even ended up helping you because they were also kind of bootstrapping themselves. So was it anything to do with who you were or was it, do you think, it just happened by accident? Because for many people who are also at your age would probably wonder that if they want to do something similar like that uh, at this current time, do you think they would have a similar journey if they want to explore that way? I would say a bit of both. I think obviously there was a lot of um, you know timing factor into it. Like there weren't as many events happening in the first place. Like uh, I remember the startup events, for example, start to take like take you know it started to happen around 11, 12th grade for me, and then it took off. And now obviously we have a lot more startup events as well. So I think a lot of these things was timing. I was there in the community when it was just starting to pick up. 
at its early stages. That was helpful. And the, I think in terms of a personal trait, probably the only thing that I can think of in terms of what helped me was the same way that I would have met you, which is I didn't hesitate to mess with someone. Like, I think that was one of the things that I did. Like, I would, like, I remember uh, with Sony Auntie, for example, like, I just randomly emailed her. I found her email somewhere online. And I just randomly emailed her. Um, and then she introduced me to Shamim Bhai um, from akuni.com and, and the, he was he became the basis president right after that as well so Shamim Pai and Shamim Pai introduced me to Fahim Pai so it was like initially I would just randomly email people and get in touch with them like Hasim Pai I remember I just randomly emailed him saying hey Pai, I just want, I'm doing this I want to learn from you etc and he was just more than willing to help out so that that played a big role like just randomly emailing people and asking for help and then once they did help they would also introduce me to other people who could help more and that basically sort of went on in the cycle but where did this? Uh, where did you get all this courage and this this sense of urgency to randomly email people? I mean, I talk to young professionals, young graduates, even to this day. I mean, they wouldn't even dare doing that. And here you are, just randomly emailing people. Who taught you to do that, or what made you want to do that? I think it was actually the fact that I was that young that helped me with that because it was sort of like I didn't know that it. For example, right now, if I was to email someone, I know that, let's say, a warm intro might be more helpful than doing a cold email, etc. All of these things were nothing for, like, a 15-year-old, right? Like, for, for me, I, I didn't really think about all of these things, right? And what's the worst that could happen? Someone's going to ignore my email? That was sort of my thought process, right? I wasn't thinking about, okay, if this guy doesn't reply back to me or, like, you know, my world's going to fall apart. It, it, it wouldn't, right? So for me, it was just, I didn't know manners, A. So that's something that I learned as I went. So in my initial emails that I would have sent out, would have been very informal, very like um, wordy. And like the emails that I would have sent out near the end, sort of grade 11, 12, would have been a lot more concise and stuff. So those are things that I learned along the way. But it was sort of one of the good things. And, and this is where I say that I'm lucky is that even when I sent out those early emails, no one sort of replied back and said, who are you young kid? Like, shut up. Like, no, no one said that, right? And because no one said that, and because people were sort of willing to help out, this is sort of this reward cycle where I knew that if I reached out, Chances are the person's either going to help me or they're just going to not reply to my email, either of which is fine by me. Um, and then that helped, you know, pump that cycle on and on. So at this point, you're quite handful with your coding, with your events, and then school. Uh, did you have any other hobbies at this point, like uh, when you were growing up? Yes, I was very much into basketball all the way up to high school. So basketball was the sport that I was most involved in. Um, so basketball was, was an important part. Coding was an important part. And I, I was serious about academics, especially throughout the end of high school-ish, uh, so grade 10 and beyond, I was, I was pretty serious about academics. So that would take up a lot of my time as well. And um, you also were one of the youngest TEDx speakers in Bangladesh as well. And I was very, you know, we from the TEDx Taka team were extremely fortunate to have you there speaking for us. Although you yourself are a TEDx uh, uh, you know, youth uh, events organizer as well at your, new, at your school, ISD. But tell us about your, a little bit about your experience when you were asked to present um, a TEDx talk uh, at the age of 15, I believe. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact age, but yeah, it was, it was, relatively, it was relatively young. Um, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. I remember, um, I'm, I mean, you were involved and I knew you from before, but I think Tawhid Bhai I met for the first time when that sort of uh, entire thing happened. Um, it, was, it was a great experience. Like, I think TEDx... To this day, I think it is the is the biggest event I had ever spoken at in terms of like the sheer number of people and obviously in terms of international recognition as well. Um, so it was a great experience. And obviously the other speakers in the lineup were you know, 
extremely successful people and like some of the people that you know most of us in Bangladesh would look up to and do look up to. Um, so that was that was definitely a big. Was it? It, it was. It was my year, right? When Mr. Uh, Suhail Alam also presented at TEDx. Was it? Was it our my year? You, I think you were. I think that was just the year before. Okay. I think in your event. We had Peter Eigen from Transparency International. Right, right. Uh, he's the founder of uh, from Germany. I think from MIT we had this Bangladeshi scientist who came in who talked about uh, some of the advanced technology stuff that they're working on. We had yeah. the founder of Goodwave and a few other speakers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at, even at the time, obviously, I, I would have heard of a lot of the, the people who spoke before that event and at that event. Um, and would have known about these people, and it, it was it was definitely a very wow sort of factor in me at the time because it was like, you know, among all these great people, here's this like I don't know, 16, 17 year old kid um, speaking. And I remember what was interesting is there were people, there were two people who were younger than me at that event, right? Um, yeah, we had actually also two kids, uh, one nine and one eleven. Yes, at the time I remember that. So that was that was sort of a sigh of relief. Okay, I'm not the youngest person here. I can be fine. I'll be fine. Um, like I said, probably to this day, the biggest event I had ever spoken at. So it was definitely very nervous going up on that stage. And I remember I skipped um, almost an entire section of my talk. Like there was a section that I just didn't touch over, that I was supposed to touch over. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, was, it went well. It went smoothly, I would say. Yep, it did. In terms of the TEDx event, like you've mentioned that I organized the, the ISD event. And I think this is where it's another example of how things tie in, where I remember when I applied for that, Tawhid Bhai had reached out to me because I believe the TEDx guys might have reached out to Tawhid Bhai um, and actually talk about that. And this is, and during the entire organizing process, Tawhid Bhai has been extremely helpful as well in terms of just advising, like, do this, don't do this, do that. These are the guidelines and all that. So I think that was, that was very helpful as well. So again, this is sort of this loop where, you know, every time I did try to do something, there were other people willing to help me with that. Um, so I actually didn't have to do any of these things alone at any point. I think that that's probably an important part. And a lot of people who might be starting out might not have that, might not have that support system per se, or might not actually get as much help for as from as many people. I think that's definitely a big factor. Right. No, totally. But I think one thing that I'm hearing from you is that regardless of how smooth it went for you in terms of getting the support from the community, but you kept on reaching out for whatever you felt that you wanted to be part of or you wanted to do. And I think many of the people don't even start. And I think if you don't write that informal email, how would you know what's going to come on the other side in reply? So I think um, that's probably is very special about you because at your age, it is very easy to overthink or to you know overjudge yourself to think that, okay, you are not good enough. Why would someone even take you seriously and, and decide, hey, I'm not going to do it. But I think that probably made the big difference in yourself. Um, so yes, coming back to um, you finishing your um, high school. So how was at this point where you already decided that you want to be um, pursuing, uh, you know, computer science or anything in the engineering, or you were still kind of trying to explore or what might be out there for you? No, for for sure. Like I, I had I had been predecided on computer science for a while at that point because obviously I'd spent a lot of time learning to code, also being involved in computer science in general. So that was that was definitely the way for me. So yeah, so my major was definitely decided at that point. Like I, there wasn't anything else that I was considering at all. One thing I want to ask you is that do you think that for kids these days, especially because of the globalization, all the exposure to everything that's happening in the world from a quite early stage in life, is it possible for anyone who is in the high school to kind of figure out or decide 
what they want to pursue in terms of their you know university uh, you know specialization or do you think that for you it was just a you know lucky break that you knew somehow because of the early exposure to coding i think like growing up like one of the things i guess that's that, that might be sort of relatively unique to my case was that in my my parents were both very ambitious people like like not a lot of people know this but you know because they got they were married like they were they were love marriage so they basically actually left their parents homes on both sides and sort of started their career from scratch more or less right um and you know fortunately alhamdulillah they ended up becoming the most successful people within both families right and one of those things that really stuck with me and when i was born like during my lifetime i've seen both my dad and my mom sort of do better and better over time so it wasn't it wasn't static my lifetime wasn't static right so that what that did is you know as a kid i would always dream of being different things so before fourth grade like one of the things that i really wanted to pursue was being a doctor like that was one of the things that was almost in me like i was very sure i'll be a doctor someday and when when i started coding it was like i was very sure i'll be an engineer someday and that just happened to have never changed right but in terms of having certainty or like being like having an ambition on like what i want to do and what i want to be this this sort of idea existed sort of in me from a very young age and i think my parents obviously um did everything they could to sort of actually pass that on so this, this drive i think was very important because at no point in my life like it wasn't like there was i can't remember a point in my life where i didn't think about what i would do in the future like this was this was sort of a part of me since i was growing up so initially it was a doctor once i started coding it was it was an engineer and it was it just stopped like like i said like in terms of the major as well i never i never second guessed it like since i started coding to to this day it's always been i'm going to be a software engineer so after your graduation uh, in your high school you moved to canada to study your undergrads uh, at ubc university of british columbia um uh, and you were studying uh, computer science and also you were um you know full ride scholarship as well um tell us uh, how did that happen and why did you choose uh, ubc uh, instead of any other uh, engineering school in the world yeah for sure um so growing up like my my parents always always told me that you know if you if you want to study abroad you'll have to get a scholarship like this was a very clear message that i got from my parents um and the second thing was like obviously you know you can probably attest to this as well growing up we've all been sort of almost hardwired to think that you know foreign education is sort of the way to go and in terms of computer science specifically this is um this traditionally has been true in terms of research and the opportunities that lie uh, abroad so i was always interested in going abroad and for me in my head the only way i could go abroad was if i got a scholarship like that was very much you know that was very clear in my head um so yeah so i basically only applied to universities that do give full ride scholarships so i didn't apply anywhere where i would actually have to pay um and in terms of choosing ubc in fact ubc or or canada in itself like canada was not my first priority i wanted to go to the states um that was that was really my goal but the problem was because i only applied to universities that would offer a full ride scholarship had i gotten in these are more the most elite universities in the us so i was waitlisted in a few of them uh, i was deferred by a few of them but i actually didn't make it to any of them so because i didn't make it and at the time i got the scholarship offer from ubc that's basically what i took i got into a few universities in the uk but uk does at least at the time didn't offer any scholarship to these those universities and i didn't know about like i know i know now that oxford or cambridge or both uh, have a scholarship for the reed scholarship i didn't know about it at the time so i didn't actually apply for it so um yeah so i guess ubc was sort of the only one that i 
that was in my head where I actually got an offer for the for the full ride scholarship and I would actually do that was sort of a process. I, I wish it was more complicated. I wish it was I wish it was more like okay, I, I decided on these all of these factors. It wasn't. So had it not been UBC offering you full ride scholarship, what would have happened, do you think? I actually don't know. So I, you know, my friends at the time and I've I've been you know, we, we have this sort of group of people who graduated my year and the year before within all, all across the country um, with good academic sort of credentials, if you will. So within that group, there are lots of people who actually have that problem where they applied the first time and they didn't actually make it to any of the top universities that they wanted to go to. Um, and the common sort of precedence that was set at the time was then you take a gap year. You take a year off, you study for your SATs, do as well as you possibly can, and then reapply. Um, some of them, what they would do is they would actually, and I obviously have friends like that who did that, they would go in and enroll at a Bangladesh University while prepping for their SATs and preparing to apply abroad again. And then a year later, they'll just apply. If they get in, they'll just leave and go. And that that was probably one of those two would have been the approaches that I would take. So while you are studying computer science at UBC, and now that your tuition is paid for, um, so you didn't necessarily have anything to worry about financing. So how did you channel that time to really push yourself beyond the usual academics during those years in UBC? Email people. That's exactly what I did. I emailed people. So I remember um, October of my first year, I emailed, I think it was three or four of the professors like uh, within the computer science department. One of those professors uh, got back to me, Dr. Ivan is his name. He got back to me. And I basically said, hey, I've been coding for, you know, X amount of time and I know X, Y, Z. I'd love to work with you. I know you're working on these projects. They're very interesting. I'd love to learn from you. And professors typically don't take undergraduate students unless it's like a summer role or whatever. Um, It's it's a bit, especially not first year students. I I still email them. And Dr. Ivan basically got curious and he, he just asked me to visit his office the next day. He wasn't my professor, so he didn't actually take any of my classes. This was a person I found randomly on Google to UBC's website. Um, and yeah, so I, I ended up meeting him and then I told him that I knew JavaScript. And he had this one project where they needed someone to help out in the JavaScript and front-end side of things. So he basically said, okay, come in, do this. If you're good, I'll keep you around. And I basically said, okay. And we ended up you know, starting this voluntary research role, if you will. I did that from November of that year all the way till April of that year. And... Um, Eventually, basically, Dr. Ivan helped me get like a research role within for the summer in the university, which was which was which would have been a paid role. But around the same time, like first year of university, I actually emailed this other person. His name is Jayesh. He was the co-founder and CEO at a startup called Picketic based out of Vancouver. I emailed Jayesh like once. He basically replied saying, "I, I basically pointed out a bug in their in in their sort of application in the mobile view." And said, hey, by the way, if you guys are hiring, like I'm, I am looking for an internship. And then he got interested and he got on a call with me. And then I think a few, I think a week before I was supposed to join at my research role, he asked me to go over to his office. And I did. And then they basically interviewed me for the role. And then they ended up offering me the role in like while I was still in the office. And basically now I had to choose between the research role and this. And if I had taken this, then I had to, I'd have to go back to Dr. Ivan and say that I'm not going to do the research role. Um, so I talked to Jayesh about this. He, he's obviously advised me on this. He said, you know, take the next week off, um, go and sort of talk to your professor, see how things are. If things are okay from his end, then come and join. And basically I ended up talking to Dr. Ivan. He was very, you know, um, happy about the fact that I got a job and, you know, he was more than willing to accommodate. It, it, it was so late that I actually, 
got paid for the research show for the first two weeks, even though I wasn't there. I actually returned that money a few months after that, like because I was already in the payroll system for UBC. Um, but yeah, so had to return that, went into Picketic, and it was probably one of the best um, job experiences I've had in my life. Like Picketic, it was a startup, like 10 people team. Um, just two years after that, Picketic got acquired by Eventbrite, actually. So it was, it was a very fast-paced startup at the time, I remember, um, working on like features that we would ship and then suddenly thousands of people are using it. So it was, it was a cool experience. And uh, when did you graduate from UBC afterwards? Uh, 2020, so actually pretty recently. It's a long story, but very recently, technically speaking. Um, what do you mean? Why do you say a long story? Did you did you extend your uh, years uh, at UBC or you took a break? So not not exactly extend, but I I did IB in high school, right? So because of IB, I had a lot of transfer credits. So if I did want to, I could have graduated in three years, which means I could have graduated in 2018 if I wanted to. Um, and then even without the transfer credits, a four year degree plus I did co op, which would have made it a five year degree. That's that's what I ended up taking. But I could have graduated two years sooner if I hadn't done co-op and if I hadn't taken sort of um, some extra courses here. And then sometimes specifically for gays, um, which was a crucial part because I they started while I was still in university. So I had to do a lot of back and forth trips between Dhaka and Vancouver, um, like almost every other month. Like that was sort of one of the things that I just had to do. So, yeah, I mean, that was that was it. So while you're at the university, uh, you 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 worked for, was it? during the university or after when you worked for IBM as a machine learning developer? It was it was during, but like I basically wasn't in university. So, I, so we have a co-op program where you can take off and work full-time wherever you want, right? Um, so we, I actually, initially for IBM, I actually applied to the IBM job portal. So the, someone I knew at IBM, um, he's also a mentor, he basically recommended me internally as well. And then and I ended up getting that job. And then I work for NVIDIA right after. And that's a relatively uncommon scenario where someone would just take off and not come back in two years. That's what I did, basically. Um, usually co-op is like you do a four-month term here or an eight-month term, and then you come back to school, do some courses, and then go off, go off for another one. What I did is I just took two, two full years off, essentially. Now, IBM is a big deal. Uh, for I'm sure anyone listening to this, they will understand that this is a person who is still studying at the university while taking a bit of a break with the co-op uh, um, engagement and then joining IBM as a machine learning developer. And I know that you worked in computer vision solutions, uh, that too, working in the, um, uh, as part of IBM's uh, Watson's IoT initiative solutions. What did you do uh, while you were working for IBM? So a lot of the things I did at IBM was, was definitely, definitely, by definition, pure luck. So one of the things that happened is when I joined IBM, the person leading, I actually joined as a mobile application developer. So I was supposed to be working on iOS apps. But the person leading IBM's mobile team at the time was just transferred to build an entirely new practice, which was the Watson IoT practice within, within IBM Canada. So IBM Canada at the time didn't have a Watson IoT practice. So when he was building that, and I was one of the fresh sort of people who came in, he basically just asked me to do a bunch of like prototyping kind of work. And he was like, I'll just see if he can do it, right? And then when I got those things done, he took me with him to Watson IoT. So when he was sort of moving from mobile to Watson IoT, he took me with him into Watson IoT. That's how I ended up working with him. And then because it was sort of, it was also on the early days of Watson IoT, what we did is we actually worked on this very interesting project where, you know, they had this phone which had a LiDAR sensor. At the time, iPhones didn't have LiDAR sensors, right? So we had this phone that had a LiDAR sensor and we wanted to estimate like volume and like mass of objects just by 
using that sensor, right? just by using that phone, right? And that was one of the one of the projects that I worked on. Eventually, it was a, like the technology that we had developed alongside IBM Research. IBM Research got involved in that project with us on the New York office. And what the technology that we had developed, eventually they applied to autonomous vehicles um, and then basically patented it, like applied for a patent in the US for it, which basically became an obstacle avoidance technology. So basically the idea being, if you can estimate the size of an object, you can also avoid it in terms of an obstacle, right? Um, so that became, that was a very cool experience. And this again was just me being at the right place at the right time. Because there are lots of people at IBM who did really great work, but wouldn't have the same opportunity to actually get, let's say a patent pending or or work in such cool stuff. It was just me being at the right place at the right time. So that was definitely lucky. And after that, this is actually interesting. After that, the whole NVIDIA thing that happened was also quite lucky in the sense that I, I was actually talking to this IBM exec who asked me to give him sort of this 101 like rundown of machine learning and what it can do. So he, he's a very senior exec, so he just wanted to understand it. Um, and I did, and I basically took him into a meeting room and then I did a sort of short session, like a 30, 30 minutes, 60 minutes session. He asked me a bunch of questions and he was pretty impressed. And then he basically said, have you looked at NVIDIA? Like, why are you, are you going to apply there? And I said, maybe, but like NVIDIA's roles don't accept anyone who's an undergrad. Like NVIDIA's like deep learning internships, even in the IBA team that I actually end up working on. Like, even if you go on their site right now, their minimum requirement is you have to be a master's or PhD student, right? And I, I told him that, like, there's no way I can make it. And he basically said, hey, my brother's a director at NVIDIA. Let me see if I can send him your resume and see if things could work. So he emailed my resume to his brother, who then uh, emailed my resume to his colleagues. And then I got an interview, passed the interview, and ended up getting the job at NVIDIA. So had that meeting not happened, NVIDIA wouldn't have happened either. So it was, it was quite interesting how things sort of fall into this. So um, I... I am very well aware of NVIDIA, I'm sure. And also some of the gamers, if they're listening, they will recognize the name NVIDIA. But um, just for the audience, uh, explain what's NVIDIA, what exactly do they do, and what were you doing as a deep learning software engineer at NVIDIA? Yeah, sure. Um, so NVIDIA is, um, well, they, they, they made their name making graphics cards, right? Initially, like it was AGP cards, graphics cards for a computer, eventually it became GPUs. They're the inventors of the GPU. So when we say graphical processing unit uh, in computers, NVIDIA invented it. Um, and then they, they made their name doing that. And obviously, as a gamer, there's, there's a high chance that you would have used their graphics cards at some point in your life. Um, one of the things that they've been doing a lot recently, and by recently, I mean the last sort of half a decade, decade-ish, uh, is that they've been very involved in artificial intelligence and machine learning because in like the most of the advanced sort of AI models actually have to be trained or run on GPUs. So in fact, CPUs aren't that great at processing you know, neural networks per se, right? Um, like artificial intelligence models. So oftentimes they have to be trained on or, and run on like GPUs. And NVIDIA just happened to be the inventor of the GPU. So they took full advantage of that and they became not, not only a leader in gaming and hardware, but also a leader with an artificial intelligence research and development. And so I basically worked in, in their intelligent video analytics team, which is, based, which is also called the NVIDIA Metropolis team. It's their AI city team. So they built different kinds of AI products and solutions for smart cities. Um, that's that's what I worked on. So when you're exposed to this, you know, IBM's state-of-the-art Watson team, NVIDIA's uh, Metropolis team at the AI city, did you consider yourself sort of spending more number of years working for these kind of companies, being part of this really big um, high-tech, you know, very frontier tech in many ways, um, uh, before you would consider yourself doing something of your own? Why did you sort of 
left those places and started building your own company? I think one of the things that I, that I learned, and especially at NVIDIA, so um, like when I, when I was at IBM, I was working out of, out of IBM's Canadian offices in Toronto, right? And when I went to NVIDIA, I was working out of their US headquarters in Santa Clara. Um, obviously, very, very different sort of experiences. And NVIDIA in general, um, you know, pays really well. I think that that's, and that's, that's an important factor in this discussion, which is that when I worked at NVIDIA, I knew that even as an intern, I was making way more money than the average person in Canada or US makes working full time. Um, we're talking sort of six figures, sort of USD salaries for me as like a 20 year, 21 year old kid. That was like, that was more money than I could possibly spend at the time. Right. Um, so one of the things that I learned is like, as I go up the ladder, that, that, that number only goes up. Right. So once you sort of, if I graduate, if I go and work for NVIDIA and let's say I worked there for like five years, 10 years. Right. Um, and I'm making any, like, whatever, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, would I actually want to leave that and then work on my own ideas? If I have a family, if I have, you know, people, you know, whether it's my immediate family or, like, extended family to take care of, would I actually take that risk at that point, right? It was sort of like the, the more time I spend working on things, I thought, personally, the less likely it will be for me to actually jump you know, completely change my life. Because as time goes on, like, obviously there's more responsibility that comes on me or like on anyone, I think. Um, and I, I didn't think that there was a better time than this because it was like, you know, I, I was still in university at the time. So it was like, I'm still in university. This is the time where I can try something. If it works, great. And at the time it was like, Gaze obviously started off as sort of this summer thing where we were like, we're going to spend the summer and see how, how that goes, right? And, and I basically said, if it works, great. If it doesn't work, it's just one summer. After that, I'm back and I can work full time wherever, right? That was sort of the thought process. But I think the idea that about taking risks, I think, was pretty correct, even, even around my friends that I see a lot is once you, especially if you're a software engineer, once you get in that cycle of working for a big company where they're giving you like vested stock and bonuses and, you know, all of that, which is tied to you staying at the company, but it becomes a lot harder to make that jump. This is what I thought at the time and, and I still think, which is why I, I decided to do it early on. And you decided basically while you're being a student. So you're literally still a teenager and you decided that, which we struggle to even think about while we're even in our late 20s or early 30s. I mean, like, that's just amazing. I think it blows my mind to think how um, well-rounded you are in terms of your ability to make those very critical decisions at the critical junction in your life. So I think that must be very unique to you. And so, but... Definitely, the exposure in both IBM and NVIDIA must have um, influenced you to do something which is not instant, which is basically Gaze, which is a technology that's very much in that same machine learning, deep tech, uh, computer vision. Tell us a little bit about your, um, I guess that's you would call that your first startup as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gaze. So tell us about Gaze. So what was Gaze? What were you doing? Uh, what are some of the learnings from um, building Gaze and what worked, what didn't work? Yeah, so um, with with Gaze, the, the idea was, you know, given the background, I was coming from NVIDIA's AI city team, right? So I was exposed to mostly smart city kind of technologies, and that's sort of where I worked. And computer vision being my background in IBM as well. So at that time, for like almost two years at that point in my life, like I was only thinking about these things, right? So coming out of that, I think, I mean, my goal at the time was to try to build something on my own. Like it wasn't something as serious as like, I got to build a huge company and any of that. Initially it was like, I want to build something. Let's see how that goes, right? And it was sort of AI city and smart cities and computer vision was the thing that was in my mind at the time, right? 
And I focused on that. Um, in terms of how that sort of transpired to become instant, that's obviously a long story. Of, and I don't know if we're going to get into that, but um, like Gaze was the idea of transforming Dhaka into a smart city. That, that was the idea. Like that's probably in the simplest terms. And what that meant was we were building software that could identify vehicles, breaking traffic rules, um, vehicles coming in and going out of a facility, people coming in and going out of a facility. Uh, I, I think in, in the beginning of uh, sort of when COVID hit Dhaka, we were still, I was, I was still in Dhaka as well. Um, so we were building software that could help identify people, whether, whether they were like COVID positive or not. And we wanted to sort of integrate that within solutions. And at the same time with face recognition and computer vision, there was obviously always a privacy breach angle to it, which was, which was something that we had to, we had to consider um, while building all of these things. So that was sort of the idea, but it was, the problem was that it was never really targeted to a specific problem, right? It was sort of this, you know, when you, when you're, when you're NVIDIA, when you're IBM, you can come in and say, hey, I want to build smart, I want to build a smart city, right? And you have all the engineers and all the research in the world to actually make that happen. When you're a startup, I feel like you need a problem to solve, a very specific problem that you're going to solve better than any of these big companies are going to solve. And we didn't have that. We didn't have a specific problem that we could solve. And now that you're already building Gaze in the middle of the pandemic, when did you start thinking about pivoting Gaze from Gaze to Instant? And when did this start? Because one is completely in a computer vision, very much in a hardware slash computer convergence, whereas now you're building completely a software tech entirely. Yes, I think um, we've been, this was a very organic process. So when you look at Gaze and when you look at Instant, they seem very different in terms of ideas. But if you actually look at how that happened in terms of the sort of steps that led up to this, it's actually fairly intuitive. So we, we have gaze, and we realized pandemic just hit us. We probably can't, you know, go out there and sort of be able to um, build a huge business out of it while the pandemic is going on. The government's busy um, working, obviously tackling COVID, which is completely understandable. And you know, as a startup, we were like, okay, what are we going to do? Because we were working mostly focusing on the government projects and government contracts. And if that's not going to happen anytime soon, what are we going to do? Because that's this, this question, right? So the immediate first thing that we could possibly do was, hey, take all of our stuff, build it into an API, and offer it as a SaaS offer. And that's what we did on in step one, right? Once we did that, you know, we we again we ran into this problem where like, we're not really solving a problem. We're just we're we're a technology company of you know, consider of people who love to build stuff. And it's a lot of stuff that just runs, but it's it's not targeted to a specific audience per se or a specific problem. So what we did is we asked ourselves, like, what kind of problem can our technology solve? Not the other way, right? We didn't say, this is a problem we want to solve. We asked ourselves, what problem can our technology solve? And that's where face recognition came into being. And we said, you know what? Like, I have an iPhone and I can use Face ID and Touch ID on all of that on different devices. But most people can't, especially in, in Bangladesh. A lot of people don't have computers with a Touch ID sensor, right? Um, a lot, potentially, like, some people don't have biometric sensors on their devi phone devices as well. So we basically said, you know what, like, what if we built an API that could allow web developers to use our face recognition to do login authentication without them needing to have a biometric sensor, right? What if you didn't need a biometric sensor to do biometrics? Um, that's what we focused on, and that's what led to something called GazePass, which is a product that we had launched. This was the first product we launched in ProductCon. Um, GazePass got a lot of attention, and, you know, we were able to sort of get some a few early customers, but which was, what was interesting is most of those customers who came on for GazePass 
we're not really interested in gaze pass per se, um, but rather in sort of this idea that if there were e-commerce sellers and they wanted their shoppers to be able to not use guest checkout, to actually log in really fast and just be able to check out, like they wanted to convince them not to go the guest checkout route, right? And they were most interested in the phrase passwordless, where if they didn't need passwords and they only needed an email address to get someone to create an account, which they were collecting anyway, right? Um, so that was sort of the initial interest point, right? And we said, you know, why is that important? Like, why does it matter if they're doing guest checkout or not, et cetera? And what we learned is, like, obviously, they wanted to be able to retarget customers. They wanted the customers to have an account with them and know that they have an account with them and all of that. And that became, you know, a part of the conversion problem. So we, we learned more about the conversion problem that, hey, e-commerce sellers have a card abandonment problem, typically only one third of shopping carts convert into an order, two thirds get dropped off. And then in general, 97% of visiting shoppers just drop off altogether. When we learned that problem, you know, we had two ways of doing this, right? We could keep taking our technology and trying to adapt it to that problem. Or we could just say, you know what, forget everything that we know in terms of technology. Let's look at the problem. How do we solve it, right? And we just did the latter. We, we forgot about everything else. We focused on that specific problem that happened to find its way to us. Um, and you know, we basically tried to solve that. So my co-founder Motosim had experience working uh, on his own e-commerce uh, company back when he was in high school. So he gave us some insights around that. And um, at the time, I was working hand in hand with a few of the sellers who actually reached out to us. Um, and so basically, through customer interviews and some past experience, we combined all of that to design the first version of what Instant was. Um, Instant one-click checkout is what we launched in April. And then the rest, obviously, I've mentioned earlier. So now, Instant is, I would say, fairly early. I see a lot of potential. I myself have checked out the the work that you guys did at the product hunt, and I look forward to seeing more um, magic coming out of Instant and then how you kind of conquered the world. You're very young. You already have achieved so much in life, and you know, you're featured as one of Forbes Asia's uh, 30 and 30 already. Um, usually, these are some of the achievements people often, you know, consider as one of the highest of achievements in their life. And um, for many people, that can often be the recognition that they would want for like once in a lifetime. But you're so young, and still, there's so much ahead of you. What do you think is your purpose in life? What you're trying to achieve with your time in the world? It's actually a deep question. Uh, hmm. I think it's. For the more, like, as far as I go, it's sort of trying to live up to um, expectations for the most part that my mom had had in me when she was here, right? I think that's that's always played a huge factor in my life. Um, I mean, to this day, it does. Um, to my mom, I I was the smartest person in the world. To my mom, I, I was the brightest kid in the world. And that's sort of the expectation that she had with me, where it's like, whether it's academic or speaking or professionally, it was like, whatever you do, you are going to do well in. And, and that's more or less what I, what I do want to achieve. So, I mean, obviously that's not to say that um, I have to be the best in everything in the world, but it's sort of like, you know, if, if I, if I want to, if I pursue something, which I am pursuing right now, um, I want to do it really well. And whatever it is that I'm pursuing, I want to do it better than anyone else in the world, which sort of reflects not on me personally, but rather us as a company at Instant. Like we want to do this better than anyone else has ever done. Um, that's, I think, in terms of the purpose of life, it's 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 very it's deep, but at the same time, it's a very trick question because that I think for most people changes and evolves over time in terms of like 
understanding where it is you want to be. And I think for me, at least for me as, as I am today, it's too early to answer that question. But I, I think in the grander scheme of things, it's like whatever I, I pursue, I, I, I want to do, I want to give my best and sort of do however well I possibly can. Um. At this point, I want to ask you some more like quick rapid fire rounds. We're at the end of the interview. So we talked a lot about your success stories and things that you achieved. But what was one of the most epic of failures that you had in life to date? Oh, there were there were too many to list. Um yeah, I, I'd say I think it was it was mostly the ending of Incognito, this this app that I wanted that we were building. Um, I mean Smaller failures, like for example, job rejections and stuff, happens all the time. Like I think that's something that has happened before. I mean, before days before IBM and Nvidia. Like I, when I did apply to jobs, that was obviously a part of life. Like I think before IBM, I was rejected by like thirty six companies. I think at the time it was thirty six or thirty two, something like that. We had this requirement from the u- university where it's like you would have to apply to X number of companies a day or like a week. Um, so I applied to a lot of companies. I got rejected by most of them, and then IBM happened. But I mean, those things aside, in terms of like a big sort of failure, I would say. The reason I would say Incognito is one is I, I've obviously personally learned a lot from it, and two is that it was just at the time, like in in grade ten, eleven, like Incognito was everything that I wanted to build. Like that was like in my head, it was like, yeah, this is this is my purpose, if you will, right? Um, this this comp- this is going to be a startup. This is going to be huge someday, and, and that was you know I dedicated almost all my time to it and all that. Um, and obviously it, it, it wasn't, right? It, it wasn't. In the end, it it almost, the ending was almost like it just faded out. Like it wasn't even like this conscious decision that, you know, Motsim was also my co-founder there that Motsim and I made. It wasn't like that. It was like, you know, universities came, university time came around. Um, Motsim just went to Malaysia and joined a university there and I just left for Canada and it just sort of faded out and then disappeared completely without actually having sort of a reflective moment or whatever. Like there was there was nothing that happened. So I think that was an interesting failure. We actually never got um, any significant amount of people to use it. Most of the content was from friends and just ourselves. Like that's it. That was the app. We never got users um, to actually try it out. So I guess that. Um, what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs considering starting a business? I think especially if, if, if people are young and, and this is something that I question myself on almost every day is like, did I start too early? Did, should I have actually worked for a bit more and gained some more experience? Um, or or should I have started even earlier? Like this is sort of a weird question. But I think for the most people, like it would be like if, if there's a there's a line of thought that needs pursuing, especially like I, I can talk about tech, right? If you, you want to build a tech startup, it's probably helpful, not necessary, but probably helpful to have some experience in the industry, whether it's you know as an engineer or as a PM or as a salesperson or a marketing person or a product marketer, whatever the case be, right? uh, it's probably helpful to have some experience. Probably helpful to have worked with other people, because um, I think these are things that you know we realized um, you know after starting the company, and obviously we've hired a lot of people along the way, and you know we've worked with from fresh you know out of school students all the way up to like very senior people within the team. Um, we've worked with a bunch of different people. And I think with experience, one of the things that becomes very important is, you know, obviously there's capability and all of that, but discipline and being able to manage stuff and being able to sort of, you know, lead other people and advise other people is, is something that actually people learn a lot better with experience. And, you know, my, my, one of our other co-founders, Kevin, obviously like he's way better managed than I am. He's way more experienced than I am. And, 
you know, in terms of even speaking, like he'll, if you talk to him, you'll know that he's way more mature than I am. So there are things that come with experience and there are things that you can't hack your way around. Um, so I think if you're going to start a company, um, some experience, either working for a startup in that space or a company is going to be helpful. Now, that's not to say that you need experience to start a company. I'm just saying it's probably going to be helpful. And on the other side, I think one of the mistakes that we made early on is, you know, we, we, when we hired, um, we didn't actually value experience as much. Um, and I think that was one of the problems. So I think, you know, our hiring philosophy over time has taken a full 360, right? Right now, we're a team of six people where the average experience level is, I think, 15 years or so. Um, with two people with more than 20 years of experience, which is my entire lifetime, right? Um, so that that's sort of like we value experience a lot more now just because we understand that um, being experienced has its own parts. Um, so if you are starting a company and you have no experience, it's probably great to work with someone who does have experience. Whether it's a few years, whether it's 10 years, doesn't really matter, but it's probably helpful to work with someone who does have experience. I totally agree with you as well. Um, if you were to go back in time, talk to your I don't know, 15-year-old self or 18-year-old or self, would you have changed anything? Would you advise him to do anything differently than what you've already done? Not, not, not really. Because I, I, I honestly do look back in my time and, and do think that I've gotten really lucky in very pivotal moments of my life, which could have made or broken like whatever it is that I have been able to get to today. Um, so things going slightly differently might not have led to this. So I think um, in terms of the opportunities that I were presented with, um, I was lucky enough to have been in a position to actually leverage all of that. So yeah, no, probably not. Maybe, maybe read a bit more books. Maybe read a bit, a few more books. Sure. Tell me about the uh, three most influential people in your life who impacted you the most, including your idols. <laughs> yeah, um, from a personal standpoint, it'll obviously be my parents first, right? Um, I think that's going to be... Um, but I think I, I think for this question, it might make sense to keep personal stuff aside. Let's just talk about professional icons. I think that's a bit more helpful um, in terms of everyone else. Um, yeah, so professionally, I would say Bill Gates obviously would be up there. Mark Zuckerberg would be up there. Um, yeah, the third one I'm a bit confused, but let's we'll go with Elon Musk. Sure, at least uh, I think a bit of diversity would be good. What does money mean to you? I'm very bad with money. Um, this is something that my dad is extremely mad about. Um, my fiance is very mad about, like most people are mad about, you know, the fact that I'm very bad with money. So money for me mostly means the means to get something that I want rather than anything by itself. Um, yeah. So that, that's probably what it is. So there are things that I do like, whether it's buying or using or whatever the case be, and money is just for a way for me to get those things. Um, I know you have a quite a very interesting exercise regime. Do you want to tell us um, what it is and why did you, why are you into such, I would call it to my, my next extreme because uh, I wouldn't ever imagine lifting any of those weights, but tell us what it is and why did you decide to pursue this? Yes, I, I got into lifting in general, like sort of going to the gym back in 2017. Um, and you know, this, this has been, in one of the sort of crucial parts of my life, because 2017 was the year when you know I, I moved to Toronto and I didn't really initially have a lot of friends per se. Obviously, I've made friends over time, but initially, so I think working out was a great way to sort of go out there and then be active. And I, I had also gained a lot of weight at that point in time. So I was 
Um, all the way, I think my body weight was around 90, 91 kilos. Uh, and I'm a short guy, so that's a lot of weight for, for me. So I wanted to lose weight too. So exercising for me became a way to do that. But as I went to the gym, I saw like, you know, people lifting really heavy weights and stuff like that. And, you know, once you go to the gym every day, it's, it's part of the culture where, you know, sometimes people might even ask you like, you know, how much do you bench or how much do you squat or how much do you deadlift? Um, so this is, this is sort of, it became almost a metric for myself to track strength. Like it, it was sort of an, an intuitive idea. If I'm going to the gym, I want to be stronger. Right? Uh, and over time, I got really into it. So this is actually a sport specifically called powerlifting. Um, so I got really heavy into like powerlifting and um, trained for it more or less since. I, I took breaks. I got injured in between as well. I took breaks, but trained for it. And, and that's what I do. So I basically like lifting heavy stuff. So what's the heaviest have you lifted recently? It's actually yesterday. I I think I saw that too. I did a deadlift of one ninety three kilos, uh, which is four hundred twenty five pounds. Yeah, insane. That's double your weight, I'm sure. Uh, more than way more, way more. Yeah, way more. It's like two point five, two point six. Yeah. Wow, I don't think I can ever do that. Um, uh, if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? It's a hard one. One meal for the rest of my life. Like one meal that I just keep repeatedly eat for the rest of my life, or is it one meal that I eat and then I? So it's it's a basically a messed up question, but you basically have to pick one. <laughs> a lot of people picked kachi. Is that is that a recurring meal that I eat every day for it's, the rest of my life? Okay, yeah. so I have to eat it every day, right? Yeah. Um, and that case, we'll we'll go safe. Um, probably salmon with some rice and um, like an egg or two. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a that's a safe meal. So there's protein, protein, and carb. And it tastes good. I think that's that's important. Like it tastes good. Right? Oh, sure. Um, sure. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's the important part. Yeah. Um, what what do you think the world would look like in five years? Yeah, this is this is a very interesting question. I have I have debates about this with my friends all the time, but I think in five years, um, especially in so I guess there are two different sort of sides of this question. Um, in, in, in the developed world, in terms of like whether it's North America or Europe, I think we'll see, we'll see um, sort of electric cars starting to take over, where it's like you'll, you'll start seeing a lot more electric cars than you see today. Um, I think uh, in terms of like transportation, some of it at least will be autonomous. Um, so some of it will at least be you get in your car, you press a button and it just takes you there. The stuff that actually Elon Musk talks about, I do think some of it will start unraveling in the next five years. Um, but we're definitely headed in that direction. I, I strongly believe that. Um, in terms of like day-to-day stuff, I think you know entertainment will be a lot more decentralized, if you will. Like um, obviously, OnlyFans is known for the bad reasons, but I really like the idea that they started. They initially sort of promoted, which is this idea that as a creator, you have control over your content, and someone subscribes to your content, pays you money to watch whatever you make, right? Um, so I think these kind of platforms will be a bit more popular. Like you'll have more platforms where content creators will be able to put their stuff and other people will actually pay for it, right? And whether it's a per promoter, so per content creator basis for payment or the whole thing, I don't know, maybe something like Spotify or Netflix. Um, but yeah, I think that that would be interesting. So that I think is going to be entertainment. Uh, in terms of hardware, I think VR and AR will start to pick up at that point in time. I think that's going to be something that I'm definitely very excited to see happen. I'm a tech person, so that my answers are tech. And for anyone preparing for that next five year into the world, uh, what are some of the 
sort of personality traits, strengths that they should be focusing on building in order to be successful? I think I, I'm probably not the right person to advise someone to, to be successful. I think that's a, like, I, I guess I, I would say that in terms of what has worked for me in, in getting the things that I wanted to get, um, you know, I think the fact that I, you know, could email people, like, like, like we talked about earlier, that, you know, just randomly reach out to people for help. I think that is a very important trait. Um, I think it is helpful more times than it you know hurts you in any way. Like maybe you know, obviously I've had occasions since then where I would ask someone for help and they would outright either say no or they would you know mis- like they would misunderstand what I was saying or like get rude, get basically say that hey your email was rude or whatever the case be. But I think the the, the cost benefit analysis of that like the cost is a lot lower than the benefit. The upside is a lot higher. So I think um, asking for help is probably helpful. Um, on the other hand, I think reading books is very helpful. So I actually didn't know this, um, even though my mom asked me to read books over and over and over again. She was an avid reader. I never was. Um, but this is something, this is a habit that I have picked up over time. So I do read books now. Um, but yeah, so reading books is probably a great way to do this. The other thing is um, just being up to date with stuff. So one of the things that I do, like I, I like following politics, international politics. So I'll, I'll watch like visual political videos on YouTube. Like it's this YouTube channel that makes random political videos and stuff. So I'll watch all that and I'll sometimes read up on those stuff, whatever I find interesting. You know? And then, you know, that's that's a good way for me to pass time sometimes. I think that helps. Like you, you learn about things that you otherwise wouldn't learn about. Like these are not directly related to what I do, but it's fun to learn about these things. Um, second last question. Um, we know we all have professional mentors or mentors who... We go to rand and do whatnot. Um, do you any? Do you have any of those mentors? If so, who are they? And if you want to name them, yeah, for sure. Um, so I've, I think naming is a bit tricky because I have had mentors over time. So it wasn't. Yeah. It would have been different depending on which part of my life you ask me. Maybe at this point, yeah. Right. So right now, um, I talk a lot with Jayesh, who's an advisor uh, in the company. Jayesh is. I've mentioned he's the co-founder and CEO of Picketic, who sold the company to Eventbrite, um, and is now the co-founder of a company called Dunkey. And yeah, so Jayesh is definitely a huge, you know, he's very helpful, very supportive, and gives us the best advice as well. So Jayesh, definitely. Um, other than that, I sorry, not other than that. Also, Elias, um, the co-founder and CEO at Patok, um, he's extremely helpful. He's also an advisor in the company. And, you know, Elias and I also touch base pretty regularly. Um, so Elias, Fahad is, I guess two Fahads actually, but both of them are um, more of more friends than mentors, but like, it's nice to talk to both of them. Um, Ahmed Fahad from uh, Patao is obviously uh, someone who advises me a lot on product design, marketing, etc. Um, so him. And other than that, I've just been lucky to get a lot of help from more or less, most sort of startup founders who we consider to be successful in Bangladesh, right? So there's Wasim Bhai, there's Afi. I actually spoke to Afi Bhai this morning, like 12 hours ago, more or less. Um, so Afi Bhai from ShopUp, um, Sipadapu from ShopUp. Yeah, so Fine Bhai from Backpack. So basically most of the people in the startup community have been very helpful. And I do reach out to them from time to time, not as frequently as maybe Jayesh or Elias, but definitely do talk to them from time. Is there any question you wish I had asked you um, and what would that be? Not really. I think I actually really enjoyed all of the questions that came. And I think, you know, I was actually, this was in a long time, this was sort of a podcast slash interview that I was 
excited to do. Awesome. And last question. So where can the listeners find you online to follow what you're doing and to be in touch with you? Or maybe to email you the way you email a lot of people <laughs> throughout all your life. So emailing is easy. Uh, t at getinstant.co. Um, so this letter T, T for house. Um, in terms of finding me, Twitter is probably the best place. At gaze at taus. Um, gaze is in G-A-Z-E-A-T-T-A-U-S. Yeah. Great. Taos, thank you so much for your time. It was actually a lovely talking to you, really catching up after some time. We did interact in a panel recently, a couple of times back. Yeah. But I think it was really cool to hear some of the backstories that we often don't get to hear in public. Uh, so I think I'm sure a lot of people uh, your age, even my age or whatever age they are in, will benefit greatly from this conversation. Thank you so much for uh, being part of the Beginner's Moonshot. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Beginner's Moonshot is hosted and produced by me, Salman Hussain. This episode was co-curated by Samia Sharman and mixed by Inanu Rahman. If you like this podcast, it'll mean a lot if you drop a review, which will help reach more awesome listeners like yourself around the world. If you also have suggestions for future guests, please do share them in the comment section below or feel free to write me on my social media handles at Salman Hussain. And finally, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast for your weekly episodes of Beginner's Moonshot. I look forward to see you in the next episode.